If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to get it out, get ready to use it, because we're going to dig into what Jesus has to say to us. Jesus is, uh, we've been studying the book of Revelation, and Jesus is speaking to us through the book of Revelation. You know, a lot of people are scared of the book of Revelation because they, they don't understand it. And I understand what it's like to not understand something. In fact, there's a lot of things I still don't understand. Um, but you have to understand this about understanding that. <laughs> we'll see how many times I can fit that word in there. One thing when you pick up the book of Revelation, know this. It is Jesus speaking to us. It is Jesus saying, this is who I am. In fact, it is, the, the, you know, we, we talk about Revelation like it's, it's a, a story of, about explosions and wars and weird creatures. But really, it is a story, not a story like a fake story, but a true story, a history, past, present, and future of Jesus he said, this is what it's called. This is why it's called the book of Revelation. Because the first sentence says, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, we hear the word apocalypse and we freak out because that's not a good word in our culture. Apocalypse sounds terrible. But the word apocalypse just means to uncover, to reveal. So this is the, the reason uh, that, that the world sees apocalypse as a bad thing is because they opened this book and they saw the end and they saw wars and rumors of wars and they saw the seals and the trumpets and they freaked it out. But what they're not seeing is the real message, which is that the lamb overcomes, which is that Jesus overcomes and those that are washed by his blood will overcome. In fact, it talks about a group of martyrs. It talks about actually not, not just the martyrs. It talks about the martyrs that are clothed in white. But it also talks about believers that are presented at the end. And it says that there's this great dragon that's been thrown down. Of course, we know that that's Satan, right? Because he goes on and he says it's, he tells us it's Satan. He says it's Satan, the accuser of the brethren, who accuses us day, and accuses the brothers day and night. And he's been thrown down. And it says, and they overcame him, and the they is us, hopefully, right? The they is the believers. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives even unto death. There's this great scene of that accuser that's been accusing us all our lives. That adversary that's been against us all our lives since the history of the, the world, really, in the garden, he was a serpent. By the end, he's become a dragon. But the lamb overcomes. And we overcome. And this is really what you need to see. Because if you're separating the fact that Jesus overcomes, but do I overcome? Maybe that's the question you're asking. We overcome in Christ. You have to know that your destiny is tied to his. He bound himself to you. We have bound ourselves to him. We have no other hope outside of him. Amen. He is our only hope. And he said, he said this, he said, surely in the book of Hebrews says, surely he does not give help to angels, but surely he takes hold of the descendants of Abraham. You might say, well, that's not me. I'm not Jewish. But the Bible says, yes, you are the descendant of Abraham by faith. 
If you believed in God through faith, then you are his seed. You are Abraham's descendants. Because he says it's not, not just his natural descendants. In fact, he says Abraham is the father of faith. And so the scripture says very clearly, if you've believed by faith, you would become Abraham's seed. And the Bible says that Jesus takes hold of you. So that's a picture that I want to keep in my head of Jesus taking hold of me. If you go down, I go down. I'm not going to let you drown. I'm not going to let you perish. I got you. That's a powerful picture. Scripture, the, the, the old song says, sorry I said scripture, but the old song says, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness, right? I dare not trust anything else. There's nothing else to trust. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. There's nothing else to put your hope in. So the book of Revelation to a believer who will allow God to reveal it to you. The Bible says, blessed is he who hears it and blessed is the one who reads it. If you'll let it, it will bless you. If you'll let it, it will encourage you. If you'll let it, it will give you hope. The important thing is, is that we let Jesus speak to us. So we're gonna dig in once again to Revelation chapter three. For those of you that weren't with us last week, let me give you some background. We are speaking. Jesus has been speaking to seven different churches with seven different letters. These are all churches that uh, the Apostle John has been overseeing. So it's, it's significant that Jesus is speaking to John and saying, write down these words and send it to the messenger of that church. In your Bible, it probably says to the angel of the church, but he's not sending it to an angelic creature because in this case, and you'll see it backed up through other places, he's not going to correct an angel. Angels don't get second chances. He's talking about a messenger of the church. A messenger is meant to read it. So this is the person that's leading that congregation. And when he writes these letters, he writes it not in a general sense that I'm just going to shoot a shotgun shot of revelation and if it hits you, it hits you. He speaks specifically to that church and to what they're going through. And yet as specific as it is, he goes on and he tells us to anyone who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying through the churches. So the Spirit of God is speaking to the churches. And he says, if you've got an ear, hear what he's saying. You know, throughout this series, we've given you some historical background to what these cities were going through, to what these churches were going through, to what these Christians were dealing with. And it's easy when you hear the historical background to put them in a box and say, well, Jesus said that to them because they were going through this. And that's true. But that's not a reason for you to separate yourself from it and say, well, he's not talking to me. He says, this is for anyone who's got an ear to hear. So tonight, if you have an ear to hear, listen up. Because Jesus wants to speak to you. If you weren't, once again, if you weren't here last week, we're going to tell you a little bit about Sardis real quick. If you really want the, the, the long version, go back and listen to the podcast. But Sardis was a city that was built high on a, an almost impregnable hill. And the only road to the, the, the fortress that was this city that had stood for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the only real road was nothing more than really an animal trail. It was one of those places that was almost impossible to attack. And it became well known across the, across the ancient empire as, as an unconquerable city, a fortress. 
Because if you tried to hike up that hill with your army, if, it was, if there was any bit of moisture, you'd slip back down. It was, it was a very slippery surface. You'd have to go uphill. It was a very steep precipice. And there was only one real way to get in. And they heavily fortified that south side. Because that was the only way you were going to come. It was heavily fortified. So it became arrogant. Who can attack our city, right? Look at us. We got the greatest fortress in the ancient world. We've been safe for hundreds of years. We have always known safety. Who could attack us? The only problem was is that over time, all that weather that they're getting up on high on that hill eventually begins to work on their foundations, and the foundations crack. And the crack became so big that, in fact, when the first time this was being invaded by Cyrus and the, per- the Persian army, they actually were able to fit a couple guys through the cracks in the foundation and get into the city. And the king of the city woke up with enemy soldiers in his bedroom. This happened once, twice, three times in their history. They never did learn the lesson. No matter how strong you think your fortress is, don't neglect the foundations. It's interesting that that arrogant spirit kind of got into the church. Because the message that Jesus says to the church here is, you have a reputation for being an alive church, a church that's live, it's full of life. But you've really, you're really dead. You've fallen asleep. He says, wake up. Strengthen the things which remain. In fact, let's read it together. Uh, Back in verse 1, he says this. He says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. So the seven spirits of God speaks of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The perfection, nothing missing in that spirit. He's not holding anything back. We talked last week about the, the seven-fold spirit that's talked about in Isaiah. How he is a spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and the fear of the Lord and all of these things. But then he goes on, he says, and the seven stars. The seven stars are the leaders of these churches as Jesus describes them in Revelation chapter 1. And he says this, I know your deeds, I know your works. That you have a name or reputation that you are alive but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. And what we talked about last week is that sounds rough for him to say, I haven't found your deeds completed, but that's actually very good news. If God says you're not done, you still have a reason to be here. It's a great thing when God says you're not done yet. That means he's got something more for you. That means that you don't need to just go to heaven. You're here for a reason. But you got to wake up. You've got to strengthen the things that remain. I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. In verse 3, he says, So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. To repent means to have a change of mind. And when you have a change of mind, you have a change of, of heart. You have a change of direction. You have a change of lifestyle, really. The word metanoia means to change your mind. Literally, that's what it means. And yet, when you change your mind, everything else changes, doesn't it? When you determine, I, I've got, been going the wrong way. I used to have a real hard time falling asleep while I was driving. It used to be an issue for me. Uh, that's terrifying, isn't it? But like, I, I had all these tricks. I remember one time having a bottle of water that I just kept pouring straight into my eyeball. And it kind of helped for a little bit, but not, not enough. And uh, there was a couple of times those rumble strips saved my life. They were the greatest thing. 
my wife will be glad, and she could tell you now, I'm, I'm very good at staying awake now. But we, I would drive long hours, and be going to preach on a reserve, or go to preach in Loon Lake, or whatever. I'd drive long hours and just be exhausted. And I wasn't a coffee guy when I was younger. I, I just, so I mean, I, I mean, there were plenty of times that, you know, I would just kind of doze off and you're, you know that moment when you wake up on the highway, right? <laughs> you doze off for a second, but you realize that you've dove off and you're not where you thought you were, right? You wake up, you feel the rumble strips or whatever you feel. Hopefully there's rumble strips. I mean, <laughs> we've all been in situations where there weren't rumble strips. Fortunately, I never ran off the road, but I could have. And that rumble strip tells you, I used to be over here, but now I'm over here. And you know that moment when you first like jolt up and your heart just goes, and it's like a shot of adrenaline for, for like 15 seconds. But when you're really tired, you're right back into the cycle again. Well, I learned to pull over the car. Don't be an idiot, Jonathan. Pull the car over. If you have to nap on the side of the road, nap on the side of the road. Um, so please don't judge me and think I was putting everybody's lives in danger because, you know, I learned. But you know that feeling of, I thought I was here, but I'm over here. Because I fell asleep. You've drifted, right? They've drifted. What does Jesus say? He says, remember, remember. I think there is something to be said for a spirit-revived memory. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to the disciples in the boat when they were arguing about the fact that they had no bread. Somebody was to blame for forgetting it. And he says, were you guys there when I fed 5,000? Yeah. Were you there when I fed 4,000? Yeah. How much did I have left over? They told him. How much did we have left over here? They told him. He says, do you not remember? And then his second statement is this. First statement is, don't you remember? And a second statement is, or do you have a hardened heart? I want to tell you that when your heart gets hard, one of the first things to go is your memory of what God's done. You forget. You, you'll remember it in the sense that you could tell somebody that happened. Somebody says to you, hey, 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 have you ever seen a miracle? And you could tell them, yeah, I have. But you really don't remember it like you used to. It doesn't quicken you. You don't feel that, that life when you talk about what Jesus did for you. The fact that he saved your soul. The fact that he saved you from hell. The fact that he saved you from your old way, that your old life, that you were resurrected in Christ. It used to wake you up, and now you just talk about it like it's, like it's a figure of history. He says, don't you remember? Or do you have a hardened heart? So one of the first things you've got to do is allow God to reignite, to resurrect your memory. David said, restore to me, oh God, the joy of your salvation. There's something in your salvation that used to wake me up, that used to give me life, that used to give me joy. Where'd it go? He says, remember, go back, remember. This is not the first time he said this. Remember he said this to Ephesus. He said, remember your first love. Go back, do what you used to do. You've lost it. It's not too late. Go back. And here he says, remember what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. So he's actually telling them, you know, see, we talked about this last week. You can't live on past revelation. Oh, sorry, you can't, sorry, let me rephrase that. You can't live on past reputation, which is what they were doing. We have a reputation of being a lively church. People still think we're a lively church because that's what everybody says about us. You can't live on past reputation. But God will use past revelation to quicken you again. Just because you can't live on past reputation doesn't mean you need to throw out the past revelation. Because what he actually says is go back. 
Find that thing you had. Remember what you received and heard. Remember what was taught to you. Remember, remember, and don't remember it in an academic way. Because everybody in the room today, I could ask you some doctrinal questions. I could ask you A, B, and C, Bible questions, and you could answer me, but it doesn't mean that it's still alive to you. The Word of God is living. You know what I mean? The Word of God is not trivia. The Word of God is a weapon against the enemy, but it's not a weapon used to win an argument against your friend. The word of God is not a way for you to prove you know more than someone else. The word of God is meant to be life to us. So you can still know what you learned, but it's not part of you like it was. You know what I'm talking about? Do you remember the moment? Do you remember those revelations in your life where it, was, it might have been something simple? It might be something that, that now you think, ah, why did I get so excited about that? But the first moment you just got a revelation of the love of God. The first moment you got a revelation of, of the fact that Jesus still does what he did 2,000 years ago. Or, or you got a revelation of his grace working through you. You got a revelation of the fact that he's called me to be like him. Whatever it was, remember that moment. Remember those moments. You like text people. You find a way to work it in every conversation, right? <laughs> till, till your friends are kind of a little annoyed with you. Because they're like, we know this already. Yes, we know this. Thank you. But it's just so real to you. Well, that's because it's alive. Right? And so the moment that it turns from life, you see, the, thing, the way you'll know it's alive is the same scripture that says it's living and active also says this. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. When the word of God stops changing us, it's moved from living to just dead doctrine. When it stops causing things to grow in us, when it stops causing, I mean, because it's a chain reaction, isn't it? I've told you this before, but I still get pumped up about John 3.16. It's not like, well, that's just baby stuff. I, I mean, I know that already. I still get excited about that. This, this month, you know, on Sundays, we're going through um, the work of Jesus on the cross. I mean, that's, that's as foundational, rudimentary as it can get, but it is so profound. We could be talking about the cross until we're 115 and still be learning about the cross. And not just learning up here, but growing in that revelation of who he is and what he did for us. Right? I've said this to you several times in the past couple weeks, but you know, when I say, do you understand the love of God? I'm not looking for a dictionary definition or a Strong's definition or a Vine's definition. I'm not looking for your favorite preacher's definition of the love of God. What I want to know is if I say, do you understand the love of God? I want to know that it's still changing you, that it's still causing things to come out that weren't there before, that it's still moving you to do things you never would have done because that love of God is working in you and causing you, molding you into something that looks like Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. Remember that, he says. Some of you are here and you, you, you remember those moments. Now, you, I'm sure you've matured. We don't need to go, be back, go back to being babies in the faith. But don't lose your zeal. Don't lose that life. You know, 
The heroes that I see in the Bible, there's, there's old men and women that are heroes, that are taking mountains, that are, that are taking on giants, that are, you know, when you, when you read 1 John, let's talk about the love of God for a minute. When you read 1 John and he talks about the love of God, it, he's talking about it like something that is, that is someone that is just so full of this and, and is so excited by it and, and, and invigorated by it. And yet he's a very, very old man when he writes it. He didn't grow stale in his revelation of the love of God. It grew richer in him, right? He didn't grow stale and say, we all get love is, that's the first thing you learn is love. I mean, the babies know about love. No, he is the oldest guy and one of the oldest guys in the church. He's like the last guy alive that walked with Jesus. And at the end of his life, he's saying, guys, you need to understand the love of God. You need to come to know and believe it. That's alive to him. Jesus, Jesus, red letter, Jesus says this to you. Go back. Find those things that you received and you heard. What do you do? First thing you got to do is remember it. Remember it, then keep it. Remember it, then keep it. What does keep it mean? You should start walking it out again. You see, keeping something, keeping a revelation is not about holding it in, making sure no one takes, you know, like, it's not about somehow putting it in a box that you can keep. Keeping it, what he, it's like when Jesus says, whoever keeps my words. He's not talking about, like, keep, keep it locked up. Whoever keeps my words, he's somebody that's fixing their life to those words. That's my guide. So he says, first thing you got to do is remember it. Second thing you've got to do is to keep it. Start living it out again. Repent. And those two things go together, doesn't it? Don't they? Because if you're going to keep, those, keep that revelation, then you're, you're going to have to turn from the thing that led you off the path. So when I, when I would kind of doze off on the road, I needed to repent. That's not me crying to Jesus for five minutes about, Lord, I'm so sorry I, I hit the rumble strips. What's repentance for me? Put my hands on the wheel and turn back on the road. To recognize I'm not going in the right direction and to say, that's the road. I want to be back on the road and take steps to get back on the road. John saw a group of Pharisees hanging out at the back of his meeting. A bunch of religious leaders, not just Pharisees, but Sadducees as well. The guys who needed to be seen at John's meeting, right? Because John became popular with the people. These religious leaders didn't want the people to say, you guys are preaching something dead. We've been going to this guy. He seems, like, he seems like he gets it. So they wanted to show up and say, we get it too, guys. We're cool like you. <laughs> Have you been to the latest John concert? We were there. Got the t-shirt, you know. They show up at John's sermon. And it wasn't easy to get to John's sermon. He didn't come to them. They had to come to him. He sees them in the back and he goes, who warned you guys? It's really nice, really welcoming. Who warned you? They're just kind of looking at each other because they're used to people tipping their hat to them and giving them discounts. And he doesn't seem to think they're that hot stuff at all. Who warned you? And he says, who warned you about the judgment to come? He says, if you've repented, bear fruits in accordance with repentance. Okay. 
He wasn't saying, guys, you just, everybody needs to work harder. He's saying, I don't really believe you've repented because there's nothing in your life that shows it. Repentance, not just crying at the altar. If you got to cry at the altar, cry at the altar. But that's not really the repentance part, is it now? I mean, thank God. God does all sorts of stuff here. But the repentance is when I say, I want to go the right way. I've turned. I've turned. And now I'm facing this direction. I'm going to walk this way. What's the last thing? He says, remember what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. He says, therefore, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief. You won't know at what hour I will come to you. Why? Because you're asleep. Paul said the same thing. He said, he said, those that are asleep won't know when the Lord comes. They won't be aware of the season. Won't, won't, be, won't be alert to his coming. But he says, you're not of those that sleep. You're those that, of the day. You should be awake. He's saying to these guys, you, you won't know when I'm coming. You won't be aware of it because you are not spiritually awake. You're not aware of the time. You're not aware of the season. You're not aware of anything because you're just kind of moving through life. He says this. Goes on and he says, well, you have a few people in Sardis who've not soiled their garments. Now, the interesting thing about Sardis is Sardis was a place sort of like uh, Theatira that we talked about earlier that had a, a, a business of, of dyeing wool. And, uh, you know, for them to, to think about uh, what it would be like to have a, a garment that was going to be soiled or, or blotted or stained. He says, you've got a few that haven't. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You could read that verse 5 and just assume that Jesus is writing everybody's name down in pencil. And at any moment, could, you know, he's going to start erasing it. But he doesn't say that. We should, we should really be careful not to put words in Jesus' mouth. He doesn't say what he's going to do to those that don't. He says, this is what I'll do to those that overcome. And guys, listen, if, we, if we're standing before the throne of Jesus, washed in his blood, righteous by his work, we will have overcome. Right? Your name is found in the Lamb's book of life. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I'll confess you before my Father and his angels? He's not, he's not saying, we're going to talk about you when you're not around I mean, I believe this confess you before my father and before his angels is on that great day where Jesus gets to say, I know them. They're with me. I confess them. This is, this is my guy. And that's going to be a good thing to hear on that day, isn't it? <sighs> when you, your name is written, are you, are, is your name written in that book? Jesus said his disciples came back and they said, Jesus, we, we, master, master, we, we cast out evil spirits. They listened to us. They were subject to your name. It, you weren't even there, but the demons went running from us. And he goes, yeah, praise the Lord. He says, but don't rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's a huge thing. You know, why is that such a big deal to Jesus and maybe not something we talk about all too much? The old songs talked about it. Is your name written in the Lamb book of life? But, you know, we don't talk about it that much. We should be rejoicing. Jesus told us to rejoice about this. It's a big deal that your name's written in his book. It's a big deal that you bear his name. It's a big deal that he clothed you in his garments. 
I'm going to talk about a couple things here because we're going to talk about worthiness. We're going to talk about what does it mean to soil that garment. It's going to talk about who gave you the garment. So first and foremost, let's talk about this. When Jesus talks, or when the scripture talks about a robe of righteousness or a garment of salvation, most of the time, the language used is that you are being clothed. So go all the way back to the first sinners. Who were the first sinners on the planet? Adam and Eve. What do you know? The first humans were also the first sinners. We don't have a good track record. We're like batting a thousand for failing. Well, Jesus took our stats down one. (laughs) Thank God for his blood, amen? Amen. So, all right, they sin. What do they do immediately after they sin? Like immediately after they sin. They, yeah, they hide, and they, and they, they, they you know, take a leaf. Right. And they cover themselves with a leaf because they recognize that they're naked and they're ashamed, right? Shame comes with sin, right? So it should. Shame belongs to sin. So immediately, they never felt shame before. The Bible says they were naked and unashamed. They were clothed in his glory. There was no sense of shame. There was no sense of there was anything wrong. They were fully out there and fully unashamed, except the moment that sin came, shame came. They recognized their nakedness. You know, they had not been naked to that degree. They weren't wearing clothes, but they hadn't been in that sinful nature. They did have to be covered. So they covered themselves with plants. One of the first things that God does for them, he gives them the lecture, right? Tells them what the curse is going to look like. He actually curses the serpent, curses Satan, says that you're going to be crushed, gives him a promise. Then he puts, an anim- he puts animal skins on them, right? So it's important that he put animal skins on them. He says, your leaves aren't enough. And it's not because a fur coat is much more comfy than a, a vegan garment, <laughs> Because God could have woven the best of the palm branches. He could have done any of this. He could have given them some beautiful hemp garments. He could have done any of that stuff. Why did he give them fur clothes? This may insult your 21st century uh, fashion sense, but there was a reason he gave them fur. It's because an animal had to die. Blood was shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They were seeing for the, from that first sacrifice, something had to die to clothe you. And it was pointing forward to what Jesus would ultimately do by the shedding of his blood. Clothe us in his righteousness. Do you know what? It doesn't say that God gave them furs and said, put this on. There's a changing room over there. It says he clothed them. Isaiah talks about delighting for he has clothed me in garments of salvation. Zechariah prophesied, saw a vision of Joshua the high priest walking into the presence of God, dirty, filthy, gross. And Satan stands next to him and says, this guy has no right to stand in your presence. He's dirty, he's filthy, he's disgusting. And immediately a voice says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I chose this one. Isn't this a branch I plucked from the fire? Isn't this, this is my man. I've chosen him. These are my people. Because Joshua, the high priest, was representing the people of Israel. The people that had sinned against God. The people that had 
dirtied themselves. The people that, that God himself had clothed. The people that God himself had chosen. And yet they had soiled themselves with idolatry. They had soiled themselves by turning away from God. And yet when Joshua stands in the presence of God on behalf of his people, God does not allow Satan to accuse him anymore. But he says, be quiet. I chose this one. And what does he do? He says, put clean robes on him. Once again, he doesn't throw him the robes and say, go to a change room. He puts them on him. You're going to see this throughout the scripture, that you cannot clothe yourself with, with the robes of salvation, or the garments of salvation or the robes of righteousness. You have no ability to clothe yourself. These aren't things you can make. You can't take a, a, a brown garment and turn it white. There's a picture in the book of Revelation of those that step into the presence of God and it says, They've clo they're clothed in white for they have dipped their garments in the blood of the Lamb. Wouldn't that make them red? No. The blood of the Lamb makes them white. Cleans them. There is no laundry detergent. There is no scrubbing you can do which will make you spotless in the eyes of God without the blood of Jesus. It's only the blood of Jesus. So he has clothed us with a garment of salvation, with robes of righteousness. That's a powerful thought. When it talks about walking with him, I, I wonder what that means, because you know we get the picture of Jesus saying, they'll walk with me in white, like we'll walk around and just chat. But I picture this, I think what he means is he's talking about the parade, the procession. They'll walk with me. As, we, as that great procession on that day, they'll walk with me and they'll be clothed in white for they're worthy. We know from the Gospels, we know from the New Testament that there is no one worthy without Jesus. Right? Do we all agree with that? There is none righteous, no, not one. You couldn't be worthy until Jesus made you worthy by his blood. Now, the scripture is full of examples in the New Testament of walking in a manner worthy of God. I, I, I read this over and over again. I hear him say, for they are worthy. And I want to say, well, why? You know, he, we certainly know it's by the blood of Jesus. It's by his work. So, so all right. But he's sort of making two groups. He's making a group here who's, who's just, you know, soiled. <laughs> but, you know, thank God. So, someone who soiled their garment, that's not a permanent thing if they'll wash it in the lamb, right? Soiling is not the end. They haven't destroyed their garment, they've soiled their garment. But now that he talks about those that overcome, he says, they'll walk with me in white for they're worthy. What in the world makes us worthy? Well, we'd all say, well, Jesus makes us worthy, right? In the New Testament, there's like six or seven times where he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in the manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the God who called you. In fact, I could read you all of them right now real quick, rapid fire. He says this. I, I, I put it down in my, no, in my notebook here. He says in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In Philippians 1, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Colossians 1, he says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians 1, he says that you would be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. In 2 Thessalonians 1.11, he says, 
We pray for you always that God would count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith with power. So there's a sense here, most of those scriptures aren't talking about your worthiness, but rather that you would walk in a manner. Walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Walk in a manner that's worthy of the kingdom. Walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. And you might say, well, how do I walk or live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel? I will tell you one thing right off the bat, you can't earn the gospel. You know that. I can't earn what Jesus did. My dad used to tell a story. He used to, he used to tell a story, uh, uh, and it was obviously a, a made-up story, but it stuck, stuck with me as a kid. Talked about a man who uh, gave another man a Lamborghini. Said, I want to give this to you. This is my gift to you. And the other man said, that's real kind, but it's not right for me to take that Lamborghini off your hands for nothing. And in fact, I want to pay for it. Here, I got a nickel. We're even now. I just couldn't take it from you. I just, I couldn't do that to you. I wouldn't feel right taking that Lamborghini. Here's a nickel. We're even. We're square. Imagine you're the guy that gave that man that car. You'd be so insulted. Who do you think you are? You think you paid for it? This is what we do when we say to Jesus, hey, you know, thank you for dying for me. I, I, I want to I earn what you did. Oh, I think I have. I've lived a pretty good life here. I'm earning what you did. No, you haven't. You could not. You can't afford it. It's impossible. But you can respond to that sacrifice and walk in a manner worthy of it. How do I walk in a manner worthy of it? You see its value. You put great worth on what he did. And when you live a life in reaction to the great worth of the gospel, to say the great worth of the calling that you've been called, to the great worth of the king, when you live a life in that way, you will walk in a manner worthy of it. I want to show you that through the scripture, Matthew chapter 22. Jesus tells us a parable about the kingdom. It's near the end of his life, and it's important to know what's happening in Matthew 22 and 23. What's happening is he's come back to, the, to Jerusalem. He's already cleansed the temple. And he's beginning to teach. Now remember guys, this is, this is at a time where he's a wanted man. They want him dead. And they're challenging him and they're, they're fighting with him on every turn. Remember when he uh, came to Jerusalem the last time. Last time he ever approached Jerusalem, he he actually wept over it because they missed the day of their visitation. They missed it. So there, Jerusalem was a tough place. Back in Galilee, most of the people had opened their hearts to what he was doing. and Maybe they didn't fully get it, but they had opened themselves to it. In Jerusalem, he was not loved like he was elsewhere. In fact, the, the final time that he goes to Jerusalem, we call it the triumphal entry and we picture all of Jerusalem really happy to see Jesus, but the Bible tells a different story. It says that when he approached Jerusalem, people didn't know who he was. It was his own disciples that had come with him and his followers that had come with him, some who had just become followers a couple days before when Lazarus got up from the grave. Those people came with him and began shouting what he'd done and telling everybody what he'd done. So it wasn't Jerusalem receiving Jesus with happiness. It was, the re it was everybody else throwing a party as they got to Jerusalem. So he's in a city that has not received him with religious leaders that have not received him. And it's important because this parable, he's, he's about to talk about Israel. 
He's about to talk about the people, not, not all of Israel, for, for certainly a, a good chunk of them, maybe not as big as, you know, until the day of Pentecost, we saw a bigger chunk, but, you know, the first believers, the first Christians were of the, of, of the nation of Israel, were Jewish people. So it wasn't the whole nation that rejected Jesus, but, you know, the leaders did, and many of them did. And when Jesus got to Jerusalem, he began to tell them a lot of parables that had to do with their own resistance to him. In Matthew 22, it says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven might be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves or his servants to call those who'd been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out the other slaves saying, tell those who've been invited, behold, I've, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered and everything is ready to come to my wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went their own way, they, each one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. That's a terrible way to RSVP, I think. <laughs> Just say, can't do it. Well, what's he talking about? They killed the prophets, right? He sent people inviting them. They killed his prophets. They mistreated them. They, they weren't interested in his kingdom. And when he finally came, they were still not interested. So, the king was enraged. He sent his armies. He destroyed those murders. And he set their city on, on fire. It's, a, it's not a party I want to go to, but there he goes, all right? He said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So what made them not worthy? Well, I mean, because it obviously wasn't, it wasn't their background, it wasn't their job title, it wasn't their house. What made them not worthy? The fact that they turned them down. They had other things that were more important. Now remember, Jesus has already said this. There was a moment where people refused to follow him because they, they had other business to take care of. They had families they wanted to spend time with. They, parents, they wanted to wait till they died and, and settle their business. And Jesus says, unless you love me more than these. In fact, unless you, he says he uses the word hate and he doesn't mean you need to actively hate your parents, but he says you need to love me more than you love them. Now, if you don't love me more than you love them, he says you're not worthy of me. If you're not willing to leave them, if I'm not more important to you than them, you're not worthy of me. And now he's saying, if you're, what, what did he say about these people that wouldn't come? What was keeping them from the wedding feast? Well, I mean, they, they said, well, we got businesses. <laughs> We've got our farms. So they're so preoccupied with this other stuff. They got no time for him. Now nah, we're not coming. He says, they're not worthy. He invited them, right? So he counted them worthy of an invitation, but they proved they were unworthy because they rejected the invitation because they valued other things more. You know, we find out, and we've, we talked about this, I think when we talked about the church in Ephesus, that the scripture actually says in the last days, people are going to lose their love. Jesus said that. But, but when Jude talks about it, he, 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 he puts a fine point on it. He says, here's why. He says they're going to love, and, and Paul writes a similar thing to Timothy. He says they're going to love other things. He, he said they're going to be lovers of, Paul said they're going to be lovers of pleasure 
rather than lovers of God, lovers of self, lovers of money. So what is he saying? He says, it's the fact, the reason they don't love God and they don't love people like they should, the, the, way, the reason their love has been robbed from them is because they fell in love with everything else. When you love all these things more, you eventually lose the love that you had. They became unworthy. So these guys were unworthy, but listen to this. Go therefore to the main highways, as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. These slaves went out into the streets and they gathered together all they found, both evil and good. Both evil and good. Talk about worthy. Even the evil guys he calls worthy if they'll come. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, few are chosen. Once again, this doesn't sound like a guy I want to go to his party. I mean, I'm wearing the wrong clothes. He's like, hey, friend, how'd you get in here with the wrong clothes? I don't know. And throws you out, binds you hand and foot. That doesn't sound nice. Now, let me ask you a question. If you've been following along, did you doze off? Have you hit the rumble strips? All right, you're still here. Okay, you're still here. Why that guy? Why was that guy criticized for his clothes? Do you think he couldn't afford wedding clothes? I'll tell you, I don't think so. Because Jesus said, when you throw a feast, invite the poor, the sick, the lame, the blind. He's not being criticized because he's poor. He could afford, he has wedding clothes. He just didn't value the occasion enough to wear them. He's like the other ones. They didn't value it enough to come. He didn't value it enough to dress right. How do you know someone really doesn't value something? If they show up at your wedding, now this is somebody who wears a suit to work, but they show up to your wedding with a t-shirt and holy jeans, you suddenly don't feel like the most important person in their life unless you told them to wear a t-shirt and holy jeans to your wedding, right? Which is kind of the thing. Some, maybe that's a theme. But you got, you got a guy show up at court, a businessman, He's on there for some white-collar crime, and he just wears like a, a Rolling Stones t-shirt and some shorts. The judge is going to have his head. Why? Because you don't think this is important. How do you know, judge? You don't know what's in my heart. He goes, look what you're wearing. You obviously don't think this is important. Now, he's not talking about what people wear to church. He's not talking about any of that. What he's talking about is what you value. See, this is a parable, so guys, we need to take the parable. What's the allegory here? Mom thinks this is funny. Hi. Nice joke. <laughs> we all, <laughs> what's the parable about? It's the people that rejected Jesus' offer, right? Didn't value him enough to come to the wedding. Or if they did, they just kind of showed up at his meetings and just didn't value what they were seeing. He had a whole group of people who wanted to make him king the minute he fed them. Because they valued the guy who could fill their belly more than the guy that could fill their spirit. So why is Jesus saying these ones are worthy? What, what, what possibly could, could be, a, how could you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? How could you live in a manner worthy of what he's done? Because there's no way you could earn it, so there's no way I can make myself worthy. So what is he looking for? What he's looking for is for you to call him worthy. For, what he, for you to see what he, he's worthy 
of me. He's worthy of everything. He, he is worthy of my life. He's worthy of my, my time. He's worthy of my affection. He's worthy of everything. And see what happened to the church in Sardis is that they had a show. They had the appearance of something that was alive, but they lost the heart. They'd lost everything. They'd fallen asleep. They no longer counted him worthy. They no longer counted their call worthy. They no longer counted the kingdom of God worthy. They never longer put value on the gospel. And so because of this, they had fallen into a state where they'd been given robes of righteousness. They'd been given his clothes, and yet they didn't wear them anymore. And it wasn't that they weren't righteous by the blood of the lamb, it's that part of that righteousness is it's already mine. It's a gift of righteousness is what the scripture says, right? In Romans 10, the fools who try to get their own righteousness failed. But the ones who accept the free gift of righteousness, they're saved. Praise the Lord. Till you can see it's a free gift, you'll always be trying to get it yourself and you'll never get there. It's a free gift of righteousness. I receive it. What happens when you receive the free gift of righteousness? Now you are able to live out of that righteousness. And the world will see it. And the world will see Jesus. What happens when a church lives out of that salvation? They've got a salvation that they've received and now they're working it out of them. It's coming from the inside and it's coming to the outside. What about a bunch of redeemed people who are not just redeemed in status, but they are living like redeemed people. The world will see it. You are, as Paul says to Titus, you are adorning your doctrine. You're wearing your beliefs. You know, you were meant to wear Christ. What does the scripture say? But put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Why were they so? They didn't value the garments Jesus gave them. They didn't value them. You ever see a bride right before the wedding? She's eating chicken wings off her wedding dress? Just rubbing her fingers? No, you'd say that's a bride who does not value that wedding dress. Right? You know, no, no, you, you watch. You watch a bride with her wedding dress. She's super careful. She's got a friend who, who might be a heart surgeon, but all that friend's going to do today is make sure that her dress doesn't go in a mud puddle. That's all that, that friend could be a rocket scientist. Doesn't matter. Today, your job is to make sure my dress stays clean. We do everything to protect that dress, don't we? It's valuable. What well, says something, it means something. The thing on the other side for me is that I will walk with him in white. You'll walk with him in white. Thank God for that. My name's written down. He says, you overcomers, I want to tell you something. No one's going to be able to blot your name out because you've overcome. It's a powerful statement. We wash our our robes are washed white in the blood of the Lamb. But he talks about those that have soiled their garment. How did they soil it? You know, it's interesting, but when he describes Sardis, he really doesn't describe a bunch of bad, bad people. Does he? What's the description you get? He doesn't say, you guys have been out killing puppies and, and you know, and, and beating up orphans. Like, he doesn't really make them sound that bad. What's the description we get? We really don't know what their life was like. We just know this. that They have a real big reputation for being a lively group of Christians, but they've actually fallen asleep. They're dead. 
That's how they soiled their garments. They didn't soil it by like, as far as I know, like some of the other churches who would openly turn to idols or openly turn to sexual immorality. It doesn't, he doesn't say any of this to these guys. But somehow they soiled the very thing that was meant to shine. They hid it. Their light is under a bushel. See, those garments are meant to be bright, dazzling. They've been dulled by the fact that they've fallen asleep. They laid down in the mud. They didn't value what Jesus gave them. Our worthiness comes from his worthiness. Greatest way to walk in a manner worthy of the one who called you is to count him worthy. It's a great cycle. When I say that gospel is worth more than anything I could ever own. When I say the kingdom is worth any, more than anything else in my life, when I say the king is worth more than anyone else, then my life will be walked out in a manner worthy of him. I can't manufacture my own worthiness any more than I can manufacture my own righteousness. I can't make myself what I'm not. You don't look at a dog and say, can't you be a cat? Try harder. Do more. You could train, you could be the best dog trainer in the world and train that dog to act like a cat, maybe even make a meowy sound. Doesn't make him a cat. Only the blood of Jesus could turn you into a child of God. No, no amount of trying or working could get it done. But now that you are a child of God, the scripture says, We are light in the Lord. Let us walk as children of light. And he tells you how to do it. The first thing you got to do is come back alive. You know, maybe the first thing that you'd say is, if I've fallen asleep, maybe I should just, um, maybe I should just act like I'm alive. And, and, and you know what? <laughs> Sometimes even the, the, the act of smiling will make you happy. Science has found out that when you smile, it actually contributes to your happiness. But God's not asking you to, asking you to fake something here. He's asking you to go back and found where you left something. You put it down. Pick it up again. And say, I want to remember what I've received. I'm going back. I'm going to remember it. I'm going to repent. And like I said, repentance is not five days of crying. Maybe, maybe you cry. Maybe that's part of it. But, but really, repentance is turning. Say, I, I understand that that maybe you've been in church for so long. For some of you, like, we've got a nice group of diverse people, and by diverse, I don't mean background. I mean diverse in the, in the amount of time you've been serving the Lord, right? Some of you have been serving the Lord for years and years. Some of you have just been serving the Lord for a couple months. Some of you, tonight's your first night. Praise the Lord. So for some of you, <laughs> repentance means I need to stop, like, doing all the stuff I was doing that is definitely not what God wants me to do. But some of you have been so churchy for so long that like you've fallen off the rails. You're not going to go and shoot up heroin in the parking lot. You're not tempted with this. You're not, you're not going to be like you know, opening the phone book for prostitutes. Like they're not in the phone book, I guess. But you know, you're not, you're not, it's not a temptation for you. You're, you're not tempted with that. So you might think, hey, I, I, it's not a problem for me anymore. Well, maybe you have a similar situation to these guys or the guys in Ephesus where it's not about the obvious stuff. It's about the fact that, that repentance for you doesn't mean stop killing puppies. Repentance for you means go back to that place where you were alive. 
And you're loved with a love that couldn't be, you know, dissuaded. A love that couldn't be put off by somebody's personality. You're loved with passion for Jesus and passion for loving the people around you. Maybe repentance looks like going back and saying, I want that fire I had. Do you know what? You serve a resurrecting Savior. <laughs> he says here, he doesn't say that, they have to act, that they're actually dead. He says you just need to wake up. You're not, it's not a permanent. That's why I say death and sleep. Because sometimes we hear death and we think that's a permanent thing. He's not talking about a permanent death. He's just saying you guys need to wake up. You're playing dead. You're sleeping. Wake up. So I, I, I have to wake up at times. There's times I look and I go, you know, maybe it's just one area. I found out that hardness of heart can start in a small space, but if it's not dealt with, it will spread. You guys know that? You can't say, Lord, I'll follow you in all these other areas except for this one. This one I won't. And not expect that eventually that tumor is not going to spread elsewhere. Right? Been there. Done that. There is no... No way you can quarantine that. You might say, I know I'm hard in some areas. If you let God soften it, he'll soften it. He'll, he'll wake it up again. He'll take that stone and he'll turn it into flesh. So we say, God, I may have noticed an area where I used to be passionate. Maybe you were passionate about winning souls to the Lord. Maybe you were passionate about prayer. Maybe you were passionate about getting to the word. Maybe, maybe it just was the fact that you used to show up and be excited at church, just loving on people or hearing the word of God, and now you come because if you don't come, you're afraid somebody's going to call you, right? Is everything okay? You're on the schedule for nursery. Just wanted to check on you so you avoid it by showing up every three weeks so that nobody says anything. Well, maybe that's it. I, I'm not even saying that that's any of those things for you. I just want you to say this. There's a way back. Remember. Remember. Hold on tight. Keep it. Repent, return. And watch what God can do with that. Amen? Stand with me. Let's pray tonight.